you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah chapter 23, as we continue walking through uh, the message of the prophet Isaiah. This is the last of what are known as the oracles against foreign nations. Without further ado, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. For the land of Cy- from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon, who crossed the sea, have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away, who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. The Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider it together. Heavenly Father, on a gray and cloudy morning, we need your light to shine through. Not so that we can see, not so that we can lift our spirits, so that we can see your truth, so that we can see your hope in the midst of a dark world. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But what if I just like it? If I like it a lot? What if I like it a little? What if I just flirt with money? Before you even begin to answer those questions. Don't you have to point out the faulty assumption or presupposition there? It's like the teenager, 20-something, who asks, 
how far is too far romantically with my girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage? You could debate the answer, or you could point out the wrong motivation. That the goal seems to be, how much can I get away with? Instead of, how can I please God? How can I glorify Him in my relationships with my body? Isn't that the same thing going on with the question, how much am I allowed to like money? The goal seems to be something like, how much can I spoil myself and still get away with it? Instead of, how do I glorify God with my money? with the good gifts that he's given me. Now, to be clear, Tyre loved money. It wasn't a like of money for them. It was love. It was full-on lust, an inordinate desire for a good gift of God because they loved it too much. They had sinned. Money and the things it could buy had become their God, their ultimate desire. We're going to explain more about her sin in a moment, but in case you are tempted to say, I can tune out, I don't love money. I just like it a little. We'll think again. The question is not how much you like or love money. The question is whether you love God more than money. The question is whether you hold God's good gifts loosely so that your hands are free to grab hold of Him, the giver of all good gifts, who is Himself the ultimate gift to mankind. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the source of money and all good things is God himself. Four lessons this morning that Tyre can teach us about money. Four lessons. The first one is this. Loving money leads to sadness when it departs. Loving money leads to sadness when it departs. You see this in verses 1 through 8. In verse 1, it says, The oracle concerning Tyre... Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. First, who is Tyre? And why is everyone sad at her demise? Well, Tyre and Sidon, mentioned in verse 2, were the two chief port cities of Phoenicia called the merchant of the nations in verse 3. They were the FedEx, UPS, Amazon delivery service of their day, they didn't necessarily make stuff, but they sold stuff to everyone, everywhere. They lived on the Mediterranean coast, and they were good commercial neighbors with Israel, God's people. One commentary said they were known from the Indian Ocean to the English Channel. I once heard a movie line, it went like this, I'm known from coast to coast like butter and toast. That's the idea here. Everyone knew them. Tyre was known for money, commercial wealth. If Babylon is the biblical symbol for worldly power, Tyre seems to be the symbol for worldly wealth. And when you turn to Revelation 17 through 21, those two images, two cities are combined to represent everything about the world that is seductive and oppressive. The world promises happiness through wealth that ultimately enslaves us. Weird Al Yankovic, noted philosopher, once saying, if money can't buy happiness, I guess I have to rent it. He was joking. Some of you got that. That's good. But the oracle concerning Tyre, Isaiah 23, this is the last of the oracles against foreign nations. 
The first one is against Babylon in Isaiah 13, and combined all of them together, there's a reason Babylon is first and Tyre is last. It is trying to tell us that everything the world around us has to offer, money, power, everything else, will ultimately be destroyed. So be sure that your ultimate trust is not in these things, because if it is, you'll be as sad as all the other nations that are mentioned in this chapter. That's what you see here, the sad news. It spreads all around the Mediterranean. <clears throat> Cyprus, a nearby island, is mentioned in verses 1 and 2. And then verse 4 is a little confusing. Some people think it means this, the tires downfall. No more ships on the high seas taking their valuables here and there or other people's valuables here and there. It, it's as if the sea is now in a childless state of sadness. The Nile River... Mentioned in verse 4, followed by this, verse 5. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Then Tarshish is mentioned again in verses 6 and 7. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who is Tarshish? Why does that name sound familiar? Tarshish is called not Nineveh in one children's Bible story about Jonah. You get the, the, the idea here, right? Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, preach the good news to them. He didn't want to. He hated Nineveh, so he went to not Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. Instead of going east, he went west, headed for Tarshish, which the scholars say is probably in Spain. You see, word is getting around all the way to Spain, and it's not a good word. See, if Tyre collapses, so does the global economy at this time, 700 years before Christ. So does, raise your hand if you're sick of this phrase, the global supply chain. Well, Matt, you know, I don't love money. I just really like one day prime shipping. And what will you do if that goes away? Now, full disclosure, the... Giesman House is not yet on a first-name basis with the Amazon delivery driver. That's mostly because it's a different guy every day. Did I say every day? Any of that sound familiar? Any of you? Any of that make you realize how dependent we are upon the economy, the buying and selling of things? Do you realize how disappointed you might be when those things you depend on don't deliver? When they don't fulfill their promises to make life easy, comfortable, convenient. When you realize that money can't buy, it can't rent happiness. Because money itself is often not the biggest problem. Loving money is the root of all kinds of evil. Many people simply love money because of what money lets them do. It makes my life secure. Makes my life convenient. It makes me beautiful, desirable, popular. We could go on. Sometimes loving money is just a way to satisfy the other idols. Your deeper idols, the deeper things that are everything. But the end result is the same. If the money goes away and the things that money lets you buy and do go away, then sadness and disappointment come knocking. These verses aren't focused on the reasons for Tyre's downfall. That comes next. Instead, you just see the void. 
that tires fall leaves. When the center of the economy collapses, disappointment and sadness ring out from shore to shore. As we said, loving money leads to sadness when it departs. That's our first lesson. The second one is this. Loving money can lead to pride, which always precedes a fall. Loving money can lead to pride, which always precedes a fall. Verses 9 to 14. I think it's best to start at verse 14. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. This is what they call an inclusio with verse 1. Verses 1 and 14, they begin and end with the same thought. And in between, Isaiah tells us why Tyre has fallen, what the result will be. Simply put, the Lord has purposed it, verses 8 and 9. His hand is stretched out, verse 11, over the sea, the domain of Tyre, these wealthy shipping merchants, over Canaan, the larger region that Tyre calls home. And as a result, her power is broken because her wealth is broken, her power is broken. And so verse 10, it says, there is no restraint anymore. Interesting phrase. It seems to be that the people of Tarshish can now move about as freely as the Nile River moves through Egypt because the power that Tyre once had over the region is gone. Also, one commentator says the people of Tyre, it's the main focus of the oracle, they're going to they're gonna lose four things. Joy, peace, home, and rest. Look at verse 12. And he said, you will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. They won't exult or be joyous. They'll be oppressed in Sidon, the sister city to Tyre. They'll be wronged in some way and powerless to stop it. They will cross over to Cyprus, the nearby island in the Mediterranean, because they'll be fleeing for their lives. And even there or wherever else they flee, they will have no rest. That's what their fall will look like. Now, we could spend more time on any of those things. They're all painful. They're all bad. Some of us know similar feelings to some of this. What's important for now is to see these are a clear sign of God's judgment. Does that mean they are always a sign of God's judgment? No. You may experience any of these things, for different reasons. God always allows unfortunate things in the lives of believers for many reasons. He, he allows it for many reasons. But it's almost always so that we will draw closer to him among other reasons. But this is different right here. This is specifically mentioned as a judgment for sin. And what was their sin? Was it the love of money? Yes and no. Look at verse 8. Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? Money is mentioned, but that is, is that the specific reason that's mentioned for their downfall? Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Pride is what's mentioned. Pompous pride, pride, an inflated sense of one's own importance, which comes from, among other things, being honored by others. Barry Webb says there is no intrinsic connection, of course, between being wealthy and being prideful. But sadly, they do all too often go hand in hand. He mentions by way of illustration the man, the fool, who built a bigger barn. Do you remember this parable? 
Notice how many times he says the word I in this parable. Luke 12, verses 16 through 19. And Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This hits on many themes from last week. One of them is this, self-sufficiency. Money makes us think that we are sufficient for these things, for these challenges that life would bring. And you know, it's not simply those who have money that are tempted like this. Those who want $1 more get caught in the same trap, don't we? I could manage life better if I had enough to buy that thing, to purchase that subscription that would make life more convenient, that service. If I could remodel my house like that, I would be happy if I just had more Halloween candy. Come on, no one? No one's? Okay, every, the kids are still asleep apparently. As if, as if God made a mistake, by the way, when he was handing out money to all of us. Isn't that what we're saying? You know, he didn't give me enough. He gave everyone else everything they need for life and godliness, but not me. You know, but let's say you, you do have money, lots of it, like the man who needed bigger barns, whose wallet was too big for his 50s, whose diamond shoes were too tight. You, know, you, you might have the opposite problem. You may forget God altogether. Not necessarily bitter or jealous or envious necessarily because you have everything you need. You don't need God. You certainly don't need to think of Him. And therefore, you don't. The true and living God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills becomes irrelevant to your life because you have pretty much everything you need. And why shouldn't you? You worked hard. You made wise decisions. You did it. You built your empire and your nest egg. And the Lord who moves in mysterious ways had nothing to do with it. Or did he? After that man in the parable builds his, his bigger barns, Jesus finishes the parable, verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He laid up treasure for himself, which he built, but he never treasured God, God himself, the one who gave him all the stuff to fit in that barn. If you're sad when money departs, you might love money. If your money makes you forget God, then you might love money. The second lesson, loving money can lead to pride, which always precedes a fall. And that leads to our third lesson. Loving money <clears throat> is not the unforgivable sin. Pardon the double negative, but it's hard to shake. Loving money is not the unforgivable sin, but it's hard to shake, verses 15 to 18. Just to recap, Tyre, the richest country, the commercial shipping barons that made the world economy go round some 700 years before Jesus, they are going to fall. 
And everyone is going to be sad when it happens. They will fall because they love their money more than God. And that might be an understatement. They probably forgot him altogether. Their riches led to pride. That can often happen. But now what? There's a hint here in these verses. A hint of same old, same old. Of a second chance that was spoiled. A hint also of redemption for Tyre. More than a hint of redemption for God's people. You might say, if you love money, there's good news here. There's love. Possibly some tough love. Verses 15 through 17 says this. Excuse me. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of a prostitute. The prostitute. Take a harp. Go about the city. O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So 70 years is often used in the Bible for a long but limited time. So Tyre will be forgotten, but they will rise again. History shows Tyre was conquered bit by bit. She re-emerged several times. And every time she re-emerged, she went back to her old ways, which God compares to prostitution. One commentary even says that verse 16 probably reflects the soliciting techniques of harlots in the Mediterranean ports. You might say, whoa, is that a harsh comparison? I mean, you got to make a living somehow, right? But this is not condemning profit, business, personal property. This is hinting at something more. The problem was not business, buying and selling. The problem was, quote, not trade as such, but unprincipled trade, commerce without morals. Someone else says it this way. Commercialism can easily assume the policy of the highest profit regardless of means. I heard another PCA pastor and seminary professor put it this way. He was talking about a certain business who had, at the time, a couple years ago, made negative headlines for treating paying customers very badly. And his comment was this, that thing you saw on the news, that's not the first time that's happened for them. Oh, they do that. That is what they do. Not everyone does that, but that's what they do. They are a Milton Friedman business. Now, Milton Friedman, of course, was an economist who among other things, advocated what's known as stockholder theory. A firm's sole responsibility is to its shareholders, the people that own us, the people that want us to make more money, not its employees, by the way. Would you like to work for a company like that, that believes that with no caveats, no qualifications? Last time I checked, the golden rule applies for bosses and employees as well. Let me hasten to add this. We need to pray for employees, for business owners alike right now. The last two years have not been the easiest years to make a profit. It's been a tough time to be a business owner, tough time to be an employee, tough time to be a customer. But as we said earlier, commercialism can easily assume the policy of the highest profit regardless of means. And someone else says, few are the businesses that run on principles that seek first the glory of God. Few, not none, 
If you own a business, I hope you are one of the few, the proud, who run your business to the glory of God. But it is easy, very easy, not to do that. To sell your soul, to sell yourself to the highest bidder. And after you've done it once, it's hard to resist the temptation, which is what you see in these verses. Derek Kidner writes, As a fact of history, after each disaster, until the Middle Ages, Tyre recovered after an animal interval and then resumed her trading. He says this picture of her returning to her old ways, it is pathetic and corrupting. We are shown, quote, the perennial seductiveness of things material. Is it a sin to love money more than God, to make it your ultimate desire, or to use it to get your ultimate desire? If that desire is anything besides God, yes. Is it a sin to let your wealth lead to pride, a view of self-sufficiency that forgets God, thinks I am fine on my own? Also, yes. But are any of those sins unforgivable? No. In fact, there may be hints in the final verses here that Tyre is converted in the end. The love of money is not an unforgivable sin, but the love of money is very addictive. Once you taste it, it's hard to shake it off. She is perennially, every year, every hour, seductive, promising happiness. But even Weird Al knows she's lying. Several of our church members have worked in fundraising for charitable organizations at one time or another. Uh, one of them, I'll call his name John, that's not his name, recently told me a story. John made a large ask from a large donor who we'll call Frank. Turns out it was the largest ask that Frank had ever received, and it scared him off a little bit. Soon thereafter, a family member of Frank's con committed some of the family's funds, got Frank on board. A year later or so, John got a call from Frank, wanted an in-person meeting. Frank said something like this, I had no idea how much money had a hold on me. Thank you. And that was followed by a large charitable gift just because loving money is not the unforgivable sin, but it's a hard sin to shake. How much does your money control you? How much do you love your money? Whether you have a little, whether you have a lot. Because your money doesn't love you back, but there's someone who does. That leads to our fourth, final brief lesson this morning. Money belongs to God and it will return to him. Money belongs to God and it will return to him. Verse 18, money's not bad, not inherently. <clears throat> all money is God's money because all things are God's things, which he created, which he formed and made for his own glory. And then in verse 17, it says Tyre and her money, they're, they're compared to a prostitute in her wages. And then in verse 18, a massive shift happens. Verse 18 says, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. One author sees this as a sign that Tyre will ultimately be converted, probably sometime in the future. Even Tyre, as enslaved as she was by her sin, by her love of money, 
is not beyond the reach of God's saving grace. But there's even more going on here. As far back as Isaiah 2, Isaiah has been saying one day all the nations will come to Zion. All of them will bring their treasure, their valuables, their costly things. They'll bring them and place them before the king. And here in verse 18, it seems that they will abundantly supply all the needs of God's people. You know, Isaiah 13 to 23, it can be hard to read. Lots of destruction and judgment going on. All of Israel's neighbors, the neighbors of God's people, are conquering one another, conquering God's people. But it's all headed here. All of the nations submitting to God's ultimate rule. Back in Isaiah 10, Ralph Davis reminded us of this. The Lord of the church is the ruler of the nations, and while ruling the nations, he never forgets his church. He never forgets his church, his people, his remnant, who remain faithful and hang on to him while others are falling away. He never forgets them, us. And he gives us the strength to resist the temptations of the world, whether it's money, whether it's a thousand other things. He is the ruler of the nations, or you might say it this way. In the end, Jesus wins. The owner of the world, the creator of the world, he wins in the end, and so do we if we are his people. And you see, the promise here is not, we will all be poor but happy if we trust in Christ. No, in the end, we will have all the riches we want and more. Because we will bask in the riches that ultimately return to him. Her merchandise, Tyre's merchandise, the merchandise of the world, the richest of the world, will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. God's word is not saying stop wanting things. Stop wanting nice things. God's word says, I will supply all your needs for now. And one day, I will blow you away with nicer things than you can imagine. You think you have it good now? You have no idea. You think those people have it better? You have no idea. I have something waiting for you, he says. All you could want and more. All of our money and everyone else's will ultimately be his again. It's still his, but you get the idea. And when it is, there will be plenty to go around. A generous supply and a generous giver who longs to give good gifts to his children. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good. What you do is good. What you give us is good. Father, may we see the goodness of the giver in the midst of all of his gifts. May we not fix our eyes on the gifts themselves whether it's money, whether it's our bank balance, whether it's the stuff that that money can buy, the physical, tangible things, the psychological comfort that we seek in beauty or security or a thousand other things. God, be with us. Help us to know that you are more secure than anything this world has to offer. You are more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. You are more glorious and you are the only one that can fill the longing of our soul. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.